friends, I'm Adrian File. And I'm John File. And welcome to the Love the Process podcast. We've been married 14 years, 13 good ones, and we have four awesome kids. My career has centered around process improvement and leadership development. I've been an entrepreneur since I was five and I'm currently an owner and CEO of an insurance company and real estate team. We are working to become better versions of ourselves every day, and we invite you to join us as we share our journey and the lessons we have learned in life, business, and figuring out how to love the process to becoming great. Let's go. Hello, friends. Thanks for being here. We have a guest with us today. We have Mike Howerton. Mike, we are so excited that you're here with us today, and we would love it if you could give a little introduction to our listeners. Absolutely, Adrian. So I'm Mike Howerton. I am, um, yeah, I'm, uh, Jody and I, my wife and I have been married for 23 years. We've got three kiddos. Uh, our oldest two are now in college, Alex and Caleb. And our youngest, we have the great privilege of adopting from South Africa. Uh, his name is Doozy, and he is a sophomore at Woodenville High School. Sorry, oh, Bob, high school fans. Yeah, I know. It's a <laughs> and he's, he's playing football this year, so it's, it's kind of exciting for him. Starts March 1st. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Spring sport this year. So, uh, so I, um, I grew up in the church and, uh, and then, and I played football when I was in high school, but when I was a junior, I had a good buddy named Barry and he, he happened to tell me that he didn't believe in God. And it kind of rocked my world because I, I sort of thought, wait a sec, is that even an option? Like, what do you mean you don't believe in God? And I started to realize that if my parents had raised me as an atheist, that I'd probably be an atheist. Or if they had raised me as a Muslim, I'd probably be a Muslim. And it started to help me realize like, oh, I, I have to figure out what truth is on my own. And it kind of, it kind of rocked me. So I started this spiritual journey uh, as I went into Pepperdine. I became a philosophy major, which, by the way, this is not an endorsement for philosophy majors. If you want to be unemployed, philosophy is a great path. But other than that, I wouldn't recommend it. Literature, and, right? Literature? Is that what you landed on? I did philosophy and literature. Yeah, those are my two. And, uh, and a bunch of world religion stuff. And when I was a senior at Pepperdine, I still had all my questions, but I was basically at a point of despair. And I wandered down on the beach in Malibu, California. It was a rainy day. And uh, I just remember praying for the first time in a long time. And I had what is stereotypically known as just a spiritual encounter with God. I, I really felt like I met God on the beach in that moment. And, and not God with sort of the Hague, uh, hazy, excuse me, the vague, hazy, like, you know, pie in the sky kind of a God. But it, I really felt like Jesus wrapped me up in his arms and said he had plans for me. Mm. And so it just changed the whole trajectory of my life mm. at that point. Uh, as you know, I, I, uh, I never sinned since that moment. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I tell you that it really did change the trajectory of my life. I started reading uh, books like, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis and Bonhoeffer and just jumped into a whole different train of thinking and processing the universe. And it actually, what's funny is it didn't matter that I still had questions I didn't have answers for, because once you've met Jesus, it, those, those questions kind of move to the background. Like they just don't matter once you've actually met the living God. And so uh, that's when I, I started to get into ministry. After I graduated, I, I worked at a Christian camp in Washington for a couple of years. And then I realized as I looked around the mountains of, of you know, central Washington that there were no single women in the mountains. <laughs> 
so I moved back down to Southern California and started working at a church down there. And that's where I ended up meeting Jody and we dated and that's uh, where we got married and started our family. What, so year started, was that? what year was that that you relocated to Southern California? 94. 94. Yeah, 93, 94 is when I moved down and um, met Jody in 94, March 25th of 94. It's a great date in history. And, uh, and yeah, I, I worked at a few churches. I was a youth pastor, college pastor, and a junior high pastor at Mission Vio Christian Church. And then I spent uh, six years at Saddleback Church with Rick Warren as a mentor and a boss and a pastor. And then, uh, and then God called us up to uh, Overlake Christian Church in the Seattle area. And I've uh, been here for 15 years. And then I'll just wrap the story by saying I really felt like in the last couple of years that most of what I was doing as a lead pastor of a large church uh, was so far removed from what called me into ministry in the first place, which was life on life transformation. I love walking people through the process of their abundance that God has for them. And it just felt like most of what my job was, was putting out fires. It was organizational management. It was budget raising. It just was all of the things that, you know, I never went to school for it. I never got called into ministry because I was in love with those things. It just was what I had sort of found that my role had, had become. And so I've transitioned out of full-time ministry into an area where I'm doing life on life coaching. So I'm doing, I'm, I'm coaching life on life individuals. Most of my work, I'd say 80% of my work is with individuals. And then, uh, but I'm also meeting with teams, leadership teams. I, I meet with C-suite teams. I meet with um, elder boards. So just those kinds of things in order to talk through leadership, development, personal growth, life excellence, those kinds of things. That's awesome. Is that, is that, a, is that a good intro? I, I'm sorry if I talked to you. No, no, no. That's, that's awesome. And, and, you know, so I'm so excited because you have this breadth of experience and the passion for life on life transformation. You talk about your encounter with God in, in Malibu and, and that moving you in a different trajectory and, and it brings you to this place today. Right now, if you're not aware, which I know you are in America, there is a lot of uh, human suffering occurring. And right. so um, when you talk about transformation, um, there's, I mean, I was just talking to a friend who's a nurse or before, earlier today, who's a nurse up at Providence Hospital. And he says just about everybody he talks to is, is affected by these circumstances of the current world that we're living in, right? You just talked about football season going to be in, in March. We've, we've seen a, a number of changes with the way our kids are going to go to school this fall that, that are abrupt and unanticipated and that haven't been seen really in our entire lifetimes. And so I'd be curious in the context of that, how you're applying, you know, your work to, to work with leaders and what you would, you know, there's people who are listening to our podcast who are like, Love the process. It's such, you know, it's a philosophy. It's an idea. Um, what you talked about life on life transformation. That's an idea. And that's an important idea. And it's important in today's day and age to have a sense of, of what we're focused on. There's a lot of folks who, when you say the process of transformation of life on life, that's going to speak to them right now more than maybe it has in, in your entire career um, and, and in, in our entire life. So what would you say? 
to somebody who's listening going, man, I, I'm just struggling to get through the day to day. I'm yeah. just struggling. And this is me some days. Like I'm, you know, and, 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 and I'm just struggling to continue to try to lead well, all the fires that you describe, all the things that are occurring in people's lives, both at home and at work. Yeah. Yeah. It's what a great question. Cause I, I think you're absolutely right. I actually don't interact with very many people who aren't suffering in some way, shape or form, whether it's relationally because of the stress now in households that, that COVID is causing or the financial pressure because of the uncertainty in today's world and market. Um, you know, the upcoming election actually causes suffering just about across the board, right? There's stress and fear and anxiety and, and division that's caused because of that. Um, there are so many causes for why we suffer as humans. And so part of my philosophy is that there is a way for us to embrace the whole life that we were created to live. And the more confidently we live out of that place of wholeness, then the, the easier it is for us to deal with the things that we come against. So all of us are going to come against problems. The issue is, do we want to face those problems from a state of weakness and fear and insecurity? Or do we want to face those problems from a sense of confidence and strength and courage? Mm. And th that's really where a lot of my coaching has developed a, a practice of how to help people, individuals and teams really come up with resilient ways to live out of that place of courage. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, the, you mentioned courage and you mentioned CS Lewis earlier and you know, a quote that I had heard from a mentor maybe a dozen years ago or so CS Lewis said to this effect that the courage isn't a, virtue in and of itself, but it's a touchstone of all virtues at the critical point when all things become real. And, and I don't know if we've had a time in my life, maybe 9-11, maybe 9-11 in the, in the first acute aftermath of 9-11 as we're trying to put it together and figure out what rocked this nation. You know, I just saw a video of Leban, Lebanon. Right that just occurred, right? And so just there's there's just this acuteness right now to that that all things becoming real. And the necessity of what you've talked about of courage, by definition put courage into people. Yeah. So they can take action towards that which you as you put, God has created them or their purpose, we call it. We'd say, what's your mission? Yep. Right? That's the leading podcast if you you've Listen to the podcast number one is what's your mission? A question that if we ask that, what suggestions do you have yeah. for people on the topic of courage? Because I believe we are at a critical point, as C.S. Lewis described, where all things are becoming real. Yeah. What a great question, John. Well, I would say this, that uh, I, I fully, like one of my titles, if you, if you go to my website, you'll see that one of the titles I, I have claimed for myself, it's on my business card, it's Encourager in Chief, because I feel like if there's anything that we all need, it's, it's somebody to pour courage into us. It's somebody to believe in us and to, to provide wind in our sails and to just help us remember the truth that, you know, we, we can do this. We, we got this. That, 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 yeah, things are crazy and it looks, it looks tough, but we, we can do this thing. 
That's awesome. My business card has encourager also. No way. Oh, that's so cool. See, great minds right there, Adrian. Great minds. Hey, what's your Enneagram? That's the question I had. I noticed you're well trained in the Enneagram and a number of other areas. Just yeah, yeah. So so my my two really highs, like off the chart highs, are uh, number nine, peacemaker, and number three, the achiever or performer. So those two, and I can tell when I'm operating in a healthy way out of those places. And then now I'm actually trained enough to recognize when I'm operating out of an unhealthy way <laughs> in those two spaces. So, uh, so yeah, but those are the two that I spend all my time in. I'm probably naturally a peacemaker. And then I think over the years of ministry and being at the lead position, I've become the achiever. So, yeah. yeah. That, How about you, John? Where are you at? I'm an eight um, seven. Yeah, of course. It, yeah, yeah, the enthusiast, yeah. but you're charging, man. You're getting stuff done. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Adrian? Where are you at? Yeah. I'm a nine. Yeah, rock on. That's where you guys think, great minds. Yeah, exactly. That's right. No question. No, so no. to go back to your question, though, John, I, I, I really would say that, that one of my coaching strategies is I run people through an assessment where it helps them identify what are the areas in their life where they are actually – recognizably deficient and it's a self-assessment so it's what they're identifying in their own world but it's it's based on a premise that the way we are created as human beings that we all exist in these eight spaces okay and i call them the eight areas of intention because you have to be intentional about them one of the reasons why there's so much fear and pain in the world is because we are largely unintentional about these things so i'm gonna i'll go through them and you'll see what they are and you'll realize oh yeah no i exist in all of these places like this is not going to rock your world but the recognition that we are often unintentional in these places i think you'll see oh this is what matters yeah and you're analyzing and then before you go into the you're analyzing for deficiencies right to to try to turn them into strengths and uh, is that correct? Or to exactly. What we're doing is we're recognizing deficits so that we can do some goal setting and, and planning around how to create the life in each of these spaces that, uh, that somebody wants to or that I feel like we're called to. Which, so we talked football and your son plays. Yeah. One of the greatest tenets, I think, of any great football coach or team and, and certainly a focus, the mighty Bothell Cougars. <laughs> is to find is to find a player's weakness and help them turn it into a strength. That's right. And, and so it's inter and and it's been since Tom Banner came twenty years ago. Maxwell is very similar minded. It, this and, and we've had a lot of ri great rivalry games for in yeah. the conference. This concept, I think, is underappreciated. So I'm excited to hear your eight areas and, and you know and, and I think. One thing that I would speak to is that you, your experience speaks for itself, but this path that you're taking, I think people should look into and, 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 and investigate because turning weaknesses into strength, I've watched it with average kids. I mean, we go play a day at Memorial Stadium and you look at the size end of these two teams and you go, oh, this is going to be a bloodbath. And it's, it's a lot closer than it ever should be. Always, yeah. Sometimes right. we get it done, right? Because we focus on turning weaknesses into strengths.
So, so you bring up a really good point because there are whole systems built like uh, strength finders, for example, mm-hmm. it's all about identifying your strengths and then leaning into right, them. All in, right? That's right. Yeah. Which is actually, there's, there's some merit to that. And I think actually in, in certain places, like let's say in your vocational life, that actually might be something that you want to think about. The problem with having that philosophy in my construct is everybody has to participate well in all these eight areas or else you will see the deficit break your life apart. Long I mean, range really devastating. Yeah. We, we all know what a midlife crisis is. We, we've seen people have them. We've seen people go off the rails and do things that are completely uncharacteristic at some point. And the reason is almost always because they have lived unintentionally in one of these areas They've not paid attention to it. And then they kind of wake up one day, they look at where they are versus where they thought they would be. And it, it causes a crisis. It causes an existential crisis. Mm. So that's why these are the eight areas where we have to take a look at building strength in all of them. That's really good. And, all right. so, and so here they are, the eight areas. And again, there's, this is not going to shock anybody. You have a vocational life. It's what you're called to do. This could be in the home. This could be out of the home. This could be primarily with your family. It could be by primarily your career, whatever it is. But we've all got a calling that we have to pursue. The second is our relational life. Everybody has to have relationships. This includes, in general, your family and your friends. We've got to figure out how to do relationships in a workspace and other places. But primarily, I'm talking about your family and your friends, your, your spouse, your, your core relationships. Financial life is something that we all have. We all have to exist in this world. Maybe in heaven someday we won't have to deal with money, units of currency, but at this point we do, which means we have to pay attention to our financial life. The fourth level is the emotional life that we all live. So we have to be mindful enough to understand what we are feeling and why we're feeling it and then what the people in our lives are feeling and why they are feeling that and then be able to interact on that level. Would you call that emotional intelligence, that that mindfulness of also what others are feeling? I mean, kind of the nearest buzzword, if you will. Yes, that is correct. And and at times I've taken people through emotional intelligence and and done some work around that. Just because if we're blind to that, if we've never really done some work around it, it's a whole new universe. It's a whole new language. It's a whole new place to be aware of. And so for sure, yeah, we use emotional intelligence. Our physical life is a reality. So all of us have been given a vehicle to drive around for 50, 60, 80, 90 years. And how we steward and tend that that physical vehicle, that will impact all of us in many, many ways. Uh, Our intellectual life, so how we're growing, how we're learning, how we're challenging ourselves mentally. Our recreational life, so there's no way we should live this life unless we build fun into it. Right. That, there is, that is not what it has been intended for humans is it all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. We don't want that. And then the last level is actually the core level. It's the level that comes right at the middle of all of the rest of them. And that is the spiritual life that each one of us has. Every single human being is involved right now in all eight of these areas. The problem is that we don't pay attention or we're not very intentional about some of these areas. And so when we don't pay attention to them, we create deficits there. And those are the things that derail our lives. They really do train wreck us. Mm, That's awesome. I, 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 yeah, like you said, what I, what I think is interesting too, is you said, none of these things are going to shock you, 
Right. The, the, you know, it's like uh, another football analogy. Vince Lombardi every year at the beginning of the season, he go, gentlemen, this is a football. And, and, and John would spend about an hour and a half on, on socks, on the, putting on socks every yeah. single year. And uh, would you say, um, so I talk about uh, awareness, acceptance, and action, you know, when it comes to these type of areas. Would you yeah. say that, uh, what is the, so once we become aware, so you go through this, you go through this analysis that you provide people, they become aware, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm deficient in, and I just look off the top. I, you know, I, I'm kind of <laughs> all about me, I guess. I, but I'm like, hey, where where am I struggling in in this this deal? And I go, mm, recreational. I'm working a lot, right? So yeah. you know, now those who know my golf round logs, they'd say, really? Start your golf today. But, <laughs> but, That's what they'd say. <laughs> But every, it's like, like, like they, the presidents of the United States get all this great, you know, they play 300 rounds of golf per term or whatever. And it's like, you're not golfing. Like, yes, you're golfing, but you're really, you're, you're, yes, you're, there's some recreative function, but they're, you're with people who you're talking about life and you're, 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 you're still engaging in, in uh, activity and, and, and it's not off the grid recreating if you yep. will. And so that's where I look and I go, man, I, I'm kind of this and that. And so then from there, I'm like, what, what's the catalyst? To, so I can accept that. I can go, okay, yep, that's what it is. What's the catalyst though uh, that you find to be successful for folks, uh, you know, accountability, um, yeah. like, you know what I mean? To do the thing that I need to do. Right, right. Because sometimes, like you say, it's, it's obvious what we need to do. We just don't do the thing that we need to do, mm-hmm. even though we're aware that we should do that thing. So each of these will be just a little bit different. They'll Actually, they're all themed really together. And just so you guys know, so I just kind of finished the thought. It, mm-hmm. you, as a human, all eight of these areas are completely intertwined, right? There, we, can, I, we can address goals and build, say, one of them. But to think that our physical life doesn't impact our emotional life, which doesn't impact our relational life, which doesn't impact our, say, our vocational life, which doesn't have implications for our financial life. Like you recognize that they're all completely connected. Mm-hmm. And that's why I put spiritual life in the middle, because if we don't pay attention to the core essence of who we are, this, the spirit that's within us and the vitality of that then it really will diminish all of the other areas. So that's, that's the first thing I'd say is that it really is. I, I try to make it as, I have a diagram and I make it as easy to understand as possible. But the truth is we are really complex and intertwined and every part impacts every other part. And so that's why what I've crafted is called whole life excellence. Because let's say, you know, John, you mentioned recreation and there's a way that I would tackle that issue I would start by asking you questions around what brings you alive what makes you come alive you Adrian you could probably answer that for me you know sort of what activities just light him up and fire him up and then we would just make sure that, that we do some goal setting around you participating in those areas in a way that's healthy that's not selfish for your family it's not selfish against your work or your vocation your other goals but that is kind of an ebb and flow. It fits in with the overall schema of, of the life that you want to live. 
So mm -hmm. we just do some life crafting and some life planning and some goal setting around all of those areas. Right. And so you're obviously taking into account, you know, that 1440 is an episode that we've had previously, and that's just taking into account 1440 minutes in a day. We've all got the same. That's right. And, and so, you know, where we spend our time and energy and to be, be mindful that we're setting, setting goals in all those areas. Yeah, that's awesome. So when it comes to the spiritual side, yeah. uh, what you're describing is the spiritual uh, core that runs through all of these. Um, we often ask a question that's very, fairly straightforward, like, what, what do you believe? Like what, you know, like everybody believes something, right? If you believe, if you're atheist, you, you, you believe like you, you believe in that. And so that there's, it just all floats through and, you know, it's, and, and maybe it's science and it is still originated somewhere or, or if it's Christianity, uh, yeah. believe in Jesus died and rose again, um, on the third day and, and, and whatever it is. So, how do you get to that? Uh, is that the first place you would start? It sounds like it would be for everybody would be to go to recognize what am I spiritually? Because if I'm void there, then regardless of what goals I set in these areas, uh, the fruit, uh, the impact, the output won't be uh, congruent with the pot. Right, right. Well, John, it's a great question. And you know my history that, that I, I've spent a lot of years in pastoral ministry. So I just want to make sure that nobody's surprised that I'm a Jesus loves you kind of guy. So that's my framework and that's how I view the world. But I have had plenty of questions with people all over the religious spiritual spectrum. So, I mean, it's, it's not at all a requirement to believe in Jesus to have this conversation because I believe every human has to address that issue. In other words, this the spiritual life is it's universally true, regardless of how you're defining it. So I, I always want to be able to help anybody wherever it is that they're coming from. And so the two issues that I have defined on spiritual vitality, and, and I think these are core for every human. Every human has to make peace with God and every human has to live their values. Mm. And somebody, somebody could push back and say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, then I'd say, all right, well, let's talk about then the peace that you do experience in your life, in your world. Like, is there, do you have peace in the universe? Do you feel like you've got peace with your purpose? Do you, you know, we, we would take it in, in a slightly different way. If somebody really doesn't understand having peace with God, then of course, I would love to have a conversation about my view of how we do have peace with God. And I, I think that's where the conversation would move to Jesus, because that's why my faith is in Christ, is I, I believe that Jesus is the one who provides us peace with God. The second issue of living your values, I have never heard anybody push back against. And the core reason why we have to live our values is because if we don't live our values, then at the central place in our being, we're being hypocrites. We'd be silly to think that hypocrites only exist within the church or only exist within Christianity. Hypocrites are everywhere. People have values that they don't live out. And so, or they, or they hold values that, that they know they should hold, but they don't really believe. And so we do a lot of work around values clarification. And then how do those values manifest themselves in our lives? I have never once worked with anyone who consistently lives their values. And so that's where we do work around making sure that everybody has been able to identify and then create a set of practices around living our values. Hmm. And so do you find that your values 
line up with these other eight areas, these other seven areas? So values are different because they, they don't fall underneath the actual, I would say the areas mm -hmm. that they participate in. They're, they're sort of over them. So for example, a value I have is authenticity. I want to I live true to myself, true to who I know I am. Well, I can do that in all eight of those areas. Hmm. Does that make sense? And yeah. if I don't do it in one of those eight areas, well, then I'm not living my value. And therefore, it, it creates internal stress within me. So once I have that internal stress going, that's going to affect how I interact with my wife. It's going to affect how I parent. It's going to affect how I'm uh, showing up at work or how I'm, I am with a client. Does that make sense? So as soon yeah. as there's that, that inconsistency within me, that discrepancy will come out in some manifest form. Uh, it just It's just inevitable. Yeah. And a, lot of conflict, a lot of conflict at work, a lot of conflict in, in marriage, it's always coming from the fact that the person themselves is feeling disquieted because they're not at peace with themselves. They're not living in peace with God and they're not living their values. Hmm. So what would you say the top three or four? Because I can think of values. I think of, you know, you mentioned authenticity. I think of buzzwords like, well, it's not a buzzword, but I think of a value of integrity. Sure. Uh, I think of a value of uh treat people as you want to be treated would be of value. Um, what do you find to be more? Cause, cause there's values that seem to be more helpful than less helpful. Yes, they're mine. Uh, and I get to, you know what I mean? Like, is there any type of instruction? That sure. You yeah. Yeah. Or you just so I, I take people, John, that's a great question. So I take people through an exercise where we start with about 54 values just spread out on a table. And, um, and it's so painful to watch because they're all good values, right? Every value looks wonderful. And the goal is I, I ask people to give me half those values that really don't resonate with their lives. Well, it's just, they're just an agony because they're like, oh, but I want them all to be me. <laughs> and, then, and then I make them do it a couple of times. The goal is to get down to between six and 10 values that we consider core values. And there's all kinds of conflicting values. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you an example of a conflicting value, okay? The, the, uh, there's a conflicting value in, let's say, independence versus relational interdependence, right? Hmm. So, so a lot of times in America, independence is a value, but then let's say in marriage, we want interdependence to be a value. Well, those things are going to be at odds with one another. You've got individuality and you've got teamwork. Which one's a greater value? Right. You've got balance or you've got, let's just say, achievement. Those things can tend to be conflicting values. And so we've got all of these values. And once you go through the hard work and it is hard work, it's like I want to say it's mental anguish to go through this exercise where you're really identifying, OK, I'm not going to pick the values that that I wish I had. I'm not going to pick the values that would look good on a resume. I'm actually going to define which are the values that are most important to me, the core of who I am. And then once we get there, then we go after a, a set of daily practices that, uh, that help us live out of those places that we say, Hey, these, this is what I'm going to live. This is my value core. That's awesome. So I want to, I want to ask a question. So, hold on, I, I have a question you go that. first. <laughs> Yeah, totally. People want to hear so, more of <laughs> It's been proven through so, <laughs> so how, um, 
how do you encourage, I guess, people to talk through their values with their families or with their spouse? Yeah. So uh, what a great question. So the, the, like one of the assignments that I would give, I actually, I just did this. So I'm just going to pull from a coaching session I had over the weekend is we, we spent about an hour and 10 minutes going through this values clarification exercise. And once he was able to land on, he actually landed on 10 values. So I, I, we both took a snapshot of those values. Um, I told him that the next time we get together, we're going to come up with practices for how he lives every day with those values, right? How he embraces those values every day. But the, but the next thing I said was, what you need to do today, before today's over, is go home and talk to your wife. You've got to have a conversation with her because she needs to understand what his values are and she needs to do some work around thinking about, oh, if those are his values, what are mine and how do they interact with one another, right? Because if we can have inconsistency of the values differences within our own self, then for sure, when, when our spouse has different values, we can see tension and conflict come from that as well. So understanding is a huge step. I think you use the word awareness, John, but awareness is just a huge step to working towards peace and then mutual respect, right? Like in, it, we want to make sure that we have respect for our spouse's values and then they also have respect for ours, even if they're different. Well, and you might be shocked, as I told you on uh, my Enneagram, I, I can't remember if it was before we were chatting. Um, no, no, you told us, yeah, you're I have, a, a, a eight, seven wing, right? And yeah. I, have, I have violated this this understanding of values, right, of yeah. others um, more times than I care to mention. Where I, because I'm driving, like we said, I'm driving towards a result. I can see the vision or the destination, and, I, and, and man, it's going to be great. It's going to be a great place. Yeah. It's going to be yeah. great for you. But in that's unintentionally, yeah, not appreciating a value uh, set of somebody involved in on a team that's on the journey that's in the car. We're going up the hill. If we get a flat, we're gonna use the rim. We're going right, and so. Um, but then, then in the macro question that I have, so I, I really, really resonates with me what you're saying and what Adrian's question there spoke to and. I think the interdependence and importance of teams probably to have these discussions and starting in the marriage and families. And you said families and friends is kind of the core relationships and those relationships that work, et cetera. My question is in the macro, uh, cause we got you and I told you I was going to take massive notes and I have, uh, I told you that last week. It, I was excited for this is in America, you mentioned America. The United States of America, country founded, you know, a little over 200 years ago, has had a, a, a tremendous history of, of various events and things that have occurred that have been both hard and exciting and hopeful and possible and a gamut. We uh, seem to be statistically, not just feel like it, massively divided in our values. And, um, and, and that to your, to your point, the values clash. So anybody can see that, that that's not my question. My question is what is a vision that you might have? Yeah. Can align what we, what we see as those individual values that are clearly 
kind of offsetting clashing clashing right because it's, 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 it's easy to find a problem like but the challenge and i think the huge question for america as we go forward the united states of america is is vision you know you talked about the bible the bible says where there's no vision the people perish and so what would that be for mike what would your if you could magically be in charge of the whole united states of america <laughs> oh god forbid that that would what, not be good for anyone but what from a from this 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 issue right yeah. what you've seen in your work and you're continually seeing in in organizations i'm sure what would it be okay well first off i just have to tell you from the very first conversation i had with you john i was impressed with you so the fact that this podcast has gone to the place of solving the problem in america just makes me so happy i would expect nothing less from you bro so here's my answer to the question and and it's not going to surprise you because of our previous conversations I, I, I'm a Jesus loves you kind of guy. I'm, uh, you know, he's, he's the guy I look to. And so Jesus has this most incredible sermon that's ever been given called, it's typically called the Sermon on the Mount. It's such a good sermon that people remember it 2000 years later, which is awesome because as a preacher, I want to tell you, if people could remember my sermon, you know, two hours after I give it, I'd be stoked. <laughs> so the fact that there, people remember it 2000 years later, is just crazy. But in this sermon, he says something, and he, it's literally the most compelling, the most shocking, and the most radical thing that has ever come out of any philosopher, it's, that it's ever come out of any religious leader, it's ever come out of any teacher, ever. And to me, this is what sets following Jesus apart from any other pathway out there. And you might remember what he says. He says, you've heard it said that you're to pray for your friends, you're to bless your friends, and you're to curse your enemies. And then he says, but I tell you, you're to love your enemies. You're to play, pray for them. You're to bless them. Uh, he, he goes into this description. If, you know, if somebody asks you to, to walk one mile, you go the second mile. If, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, you turn and, and offer them the other cheek, right? Turn the other cheek. He, he says, you love your enemies, and in doing so, and this is the crazy thing, in doing so, you show the world that you are children of your Father in heaven. And then he goes on, he says, because your Father in heaven gives rain and sunshine to both the righteous and the unrighteous. And I always thought what that meant was that, that God gives like bad things and good things, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a Seattleite, which means I equate sunshine to joy and youth <laughs> and vitality, and I, and I equate to rain. Uh, you know, to 10 months out of the year and sadness and depression and hardship. And, uh, and then I went to Israel and I realized, oh, I had a totally wrong understanding because yes, I do believe sunshine is the good things. It creates life, it's energy, it's youth, it's vitality, but rain is refreshment, it's restoration, it's sustenance, it's life. And so I realized what Jesus is saying is, you're to love your enemies. You're to love people who are opposed to you because your heavenly father loves people who are opposed to him. And he gives good and good. He doesn't give good and bad. He gives good and good. He gives youth and life and energy. And he gives refreshment and restoration and vitality to the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? That's your heavenly father. And so if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be his child, you got to figure out how to do this in your world. Well, loving your enemies, I think, is the craziest command that has ever been given like i i just think there's nothing like it 
by the way, most people that I've talked to, they downplay. They say, well, I don't have any enemies. And I'm like, okay. That's not us. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just like, well, just substitute for your enemy the person who annoys you the most. How's that, right? So for Bothell High School, it's Woodenville football, right? Like, I get it. Or Woodenville uh, just feels like you're better than we are. I mean, that's <laughs> But I would say, you know, John, this is a season of election. And so basically the nation, half the nation is enemies with the other half of the nation. Guess what? We got to figure out how to love each other. So God is actually giving us a great opportunity in these next four months to love, right? To love people across the aisle, to bless people, to pray for people, to, to take a higher road. You know, if we would do that, I think it would go a great distance toward not really convincing the other side to come to ours, but to love and create a new sort of civil understanding of how we engage with one another as countrymen. So, so what is that's so what I would argue. So, so now we're going to go. This is this is a great answer. This is probably as good of an answer as I could have ever asked for of any guest to give because I a hundred percent. Think you're right. Um, Dabo Sweeney gave an interview uh, within a week of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, and he he went to this place, and that's leadership is the ability to in the midst of the, what's happening to be able to show up because he's attended to these eight things and spiritually grounded to to attack uh, and lean in, and he he gives virtually your your answer to what he believes, you know, this, this, the sin problem, the sin issue, but also the, the idea that, you know, the Sermon on the Mount 2000 plus years ago, um, in the book of Matthew is in the Bible for anybody who's who wants to look up this sermon, five right. through seven, I believe Matthew five through seven. But the question is then from there, what does love look like? Love your enemies makes a great t-shirt, right? Makes a heck of a bumper sticker and certainly was a great sermon. You know what love looks like? That's what I'm, I know. Love is patient. Love is kind. So then do you go, so do you go to, so do you go to those places? Do you go to, yeah, love is patient, love is kind, you know, keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, you know, do you go to the, the Paul's version in the Corinthians it's drawn from the sermon? Where do you go with what does love look like? We were marriage coaching last night and uh, that was something that we provided was, was, and, and I, you know, I, I ordained to do one wedding. I don't ever need to do it again. It was awesome. I did seven walkthroughs. I was so nervous. It was silly. Um, I know. Sounds crazy. No, that's awesome. Fear of public speaking. Uh, it's funny. I, I could be in no a good at it. No problem. Yeah. I, I got to prep forever because I'm whatever. So, um, but it went awesome, but I don't ever need to do it again. But my point is, um, in that we prepared, what do I want to say to these folks? What do I want to impart? And so I went there and that's what Adrian is alluding to is, and we had it in our wedding, you know, yeah. the of these is love. I mean, love yeah, is right? just love wins. I mean, <laughs> love we can cliche this. I'm saying, what truly, give me a tangible, just like you're going to have these eight areas because you have these eight areas and you said, just to this guy, you said, Hey, come back to me with what you're going to tangibly do to show up. And right in these areas which is awesome and we can evaluate whether or not we did the thing that we said we were going to do and we yeah. can set goals further and course correct as needed in this topic of of 
these factions. I mean, we have a multitude of things. It's it's uh, there's so many layers to it right now right. Um, that it's really hard to to get what the core issues are for each individual. But what does it look like? It, what does love your enemy look like day to day in Woodenville, Washington, in Botha, Washington, and in King County? And there's people that listen to this podcast all over the country, but in King County. We are looked at as the epicenter in the nation of a place that just is at odds. Portland's catching us, okay? In a right. That's true. Yep, that's exactly right. But what does that look like here in King County and you know, and, and, and across the country? So I would I would say there are some similarities in in all different contexts, but it will look slightly different. So, for example, in your marriage love is going to look slightly different than it will say civically as a citizen of King County. But the best thing because of that fact is to think of an actual scenario where you are required to love an enemy. In other words, who's, who's the face that comes into your mind when I, when you hear the phrase, love your enemy, that person is probably the person that God's calling you to love. He was so over, I'm, I'm going to go right here at the house. He was over here at the house yesterday. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So I'm going to go right down to where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where it gets super practical is you think about that guy. And then I would say literally, I mean, this is what I'd say to anybody who's a, has a faith in God. I'd say, ask God, God, how do you want me to love this guy? How do you love this guy or this woman? How do you, how do you care for this person? And at sometimes it'll be, okay, I need to forgive him because of the wound that he's created in me, right? So there's a, there's a forgiveness process you need to do. In marriage, often it's a submission process, right? We know in Ephesians 5.21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so oftentimes the conflicts we have in love in marriage is actually a submission issue. And so, so we could go there. Jesus gives us at least two really practical examples in his Sermon on the Mount. So I'll just go back to what Jesus said. The, the, the first he says is if someone uh, that, that you want to um, go two miles uh, if, if you're asked to go one. Well, he was referring to a law on the, on the books. You might already know this, John, but the, Rome was the oppressor, right? Rome was in charge of Israel during this day, during, during Jesus' lifetime. And a Roman soldier was constantly carrying his pack around, it weighed about a hundred pounds. So there was a law in the books that said a Roman soldier could stop any Jewish citizen, whatever they're doing, male or female, whatever they're in the middle of, and force them to walk with their pack a mile, but not more than a mile because it's often 110 degrees out and they didn't want Jewish citizens dropping dead from exhaustion. So the rule was you could only force a, a Jewish citizen, male or female, to stop what they were doing and to walk with you for one mile. And there were markers all along the highway. Jesus said, no, you go too. Now think about that for a moment. That was a very political statement he said, right? I'm sure that there are people who could have politicized that and said, oh, Jesus, are you pro-Rome? And Jesus is like, I'm not pro-Rome, I'm pro-love. The only way you ever make an impact in an enemy of yours is if you show them love that they're not expecting. When they give you grossness, you give them goodness, right? That's the only way you make a difference. And it's not a guarantee that you'll turn an enemy into a friend, but it's the best chance you possibly have. 
So that's the first thing he says, instead of going one mile, go two. And then the next thing he says, if someone asks for your cloak, you give them your tunic as well, right? In other words, like if they're demanding something from you, you just go ahead and offer them more than they're asking. You just, you just take the upper hand. Like it's almost like Jesus, this is an empowering kind of a thing. It's taking the power away from the enemy and actually placing the power for proactivity in the person who's being oppressed or the person who's, who's being the victim in that moment. And so it steals the victim mentality, right? Because now I have agency in this. Oh, you want me to go one mile? I'll go two. It's almost like the player who, whose coach says, you know, drop and give me 20. And the, and the player says, I'm going to do 50, right? Like it's just this idea of, no, you can't break me. I love you. And I don't want to fight with you. I don't want this to be the story that's, that's told, you know? You strike me with one, you know, on one cheek, I turn the other cheek. I'm like, yes, sir. May I have another? And, and, it's, and it's not done in hate. It's not done in pride or, or any kind of that, you know, snarky manipulation. It's just like, look, I'm going to love you. And so in this, in this political season we're in, I think that that really requires, I would say at a 30,000 foot level, it just requires friendship building. Because right now, we don't know how to do that in America. We don't know how to build friends. We can only tribalize, right? We can only gather together with like-minded people. And friendship building actually requires us to just be cool to people who believe differently than us, think differently than us, vote differently than us. Yeah, so on the theme, I love this. So we're going to call this podcast, I think, Run the Play of Love. Because because what you're... What you're what you're kind of alluding to is at least inside me that I'm I'm as I'm processing too is because the question is theoretically makes sense. Sure. And then you sit with somebody who's you know like me. My dad left when I was young, and and uh, I told him to screw himself, and and it took me till I was 29 to uh, to get to the place where I could call him up and ask him for forgiveness for being closed-minded to. The idea of us ever having a father-son relationship and ask if we could catch up. And I remember that phone call and I remember exactly what, what I said there because I practiced it 10,000 times the six sure. months leading up to it. Yep. So, so then I ran to play and guess what? Love wins. Um, how do you run the play? How do you, how do you help people run the play of love? Because there's people going NFW. No. way. <laughs> Not doing it. Love it. Mike, you're a great guy. Love what you're telling me. I'm hearing it. I'm with you. I'll wear the shirt. Shoot. Coach me up. But actually getting in the game. Yeah. Running the play of love. Right. So th- there's there's a lot of different ways we could go. And honestly, people spend years in therapy on this. People oh, spend yeah. years in ministry on this. There's just, there's a, there's a reality to what you're saying. Uh, I, I would tell you, I'll just give you a quick two answer, two, two prong answer. The first is we have to remember that we can love people that we are not in 100% alignment with. And we can, we actually do this all the time. So uh, I would be very surprised, say, and Adrian, it's just a delight to meet you, but this is the first time you and I have had a conversation, really. Right. But, but I would be very surprised if, John, you and Adrian are in 100% alignment on every issue all the time. That that would make me really surprised because guess what? 
that just doesn't happen with two <laughs> fully functioning, complex, and intelligent human beings. We just you don't line up. Suspect. You say surprise. Some people might say suspect. That surprise is a more loving way to put yeah, it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and yet I see you love one another. Again, I mentioned my kids are in college. I got two kids in college now. And I think it's safe to say that the older they get and on their journey, the less and less they're in alignment with me. It's like when they were in elementary school, I think they felt like dad was a bit of a hero and they were in 100% alignment. And I sure liked those years. Those were good years. I was a good <laughs> dad during those years. But the older they got, the dumber I got. And so now, you know, I don't know how much we're in alignment, but that actually doesn't impact my love for them. I love them completely. My son's never going to not be my son. My daughter's never going to not be my daughter. Doesn't matter how the, we vote differently. Doesn't matter our take on the political, you know, the, you know, the autonomy zone in Seattle that have like it, th those things don't. They they matter in the sense that I care about their opinions. I hope they care about mine. They don't matter in the sense that it doesn't drive a wedge. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so if I can figure out how to do that with my own kids. If you guys can figure out how to do that as a married couple, then I promise you we can figure out how to do that across political lines or in our neighborhoods or wherever it is where you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So listening, you know, listening think, well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, sure, we're talking about the nation and across political lines and the stripes that we have. But I think there's a lot of families that have that within their own homes and within yeah. within their own marriages currently. Right. right. Yeah. And um, yeah, so so I'll I'll give you another example. Is you had to forgive your dad, John? You mentioned that, and that was a long process. It took you a couple of decades. It, it it took you a lot of work. I know God was working your heart over that that season, and probably your wife. And there's all kinds of great stuff that was happening in that season. But you figured out how to do it. You actually ran the play of love, and you you made it work. And and I would say that that's actually something that right now we could make a decision on and build a conviction around even before somebody stabs us in the back or wounds us deeply. Does that make sense? Like we, we could literally decide that forgiveness is going to be a part of my value set or grace is going to be a part of my value set. And and that's sort of a conviction that I have come to. I don't even want to say sort of. I, I know that's a conviction that I've come to. And there have been times when, as a pastor, my words have been taken out of context or I've been misunderstood or people have kind of wounded me. And I've just decided, you know what, that's between them and God more than it's between them and me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to I'm just going to be graceful. I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to release them to God. And I'm going to try not to carry those wounds with me, you know, and and I would tell you it's a lighter, more joyful way to live. So by by being a graceful, forgiving kind of a person, I actually get to live a little more empowered, a little more joyful because I'm not, you know, mentally rehearsing those wounds again and again and again all the time. So when you talk about last question, I'm like, yeah. Because we're getting up time, but is that you? I read on on your um, site. Let's talk about the seventy percent of pastors having this. Um, only one authentic friend they could cite. Uh, that X percentage of pastors found themselves five years previously less uh, spiritually connected than they were previously. Um, 
what is your, you have to, you just stepped out of a leadership role. Chris Peterson just stepped out of a leadership role for a very similar reason at the University of Washington football team. Very similar. Because uh, he believes that this work, life on life, teams with teams, the encouragement um, is, is providing more, will provide an impact and really maybe what your purpose is in life more fully than the administrative executive type role that you found yourself in. And, you know, and Chris was paid a lot of money. He was the highest paid employee in Washington state in that role. How do you get leaders, people to go, you have to almost be crazy to run for office right now. Oh. You, know, you have to, it's almost, um, it's almost a pre like to get in the ring right now where it's, it's cut. We've spent over two and a half billion dollars in the presidential election combined between the two candidates so far. And that rack, that goal is going to keep going uh, to, to run for local office, to speak in front of as many tens of thousands of people you have the collateral damage of leadership. We see it at the highest level. You mentioned Jesus who was crucified. Right. Okay. Martin Luther King was shot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we can go on and on with with visionary leaders who would would suggest we run the play of love. Right. That's right. How do you get? How do you? How do we get the next generation with the energy? Mm -hmm. Because really, it's an energy that's got to be applied. You 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 could we can have all the ideas. But there's got to be leadership. There's got to be energy day to day towards the, towards an end, towards a vision that brings things to life. Um, JFK never saw us get to the moon. Said, I choose to go to the moon. Never saw it happen. Right. right. How, do we, how do we encourage people to lead who have this vision to run the play of love? Right. So the first thing to keep in mind is – it's, it is interesting because probably those most qualified to skillfully lead into the future are those least likely to run for positions of leadership. It's, it's really interesting. Our, our, it's, a, it's like a weird cultural personality kind of a thing. And the, the irony is that the people least uh, skilled at leading are often the most confident and the ones that put themselves out there the most and are, are you know, able to get the followers and the platform and the votes. And so, so I think the first thing that I would say, and I would speak to any teacher, coach, any, you know, anybody who's interacting with people that are, let's say, 30 years and younger is you be a potential spotter. You be the person who looks at the, the, the potential that's invested in the next generation and just speak life in, speak, speak freedom, speak, you know, their voice matters and, and the leadership quality that, that starts to rise to the top and just breathe life in it, blow, blow on that fire, right? Like fan it into flame. Because I think that's exactly what's going to happen. If, if there's not that mentorship and that permission giving, I think that the next generation of leadership is woefully deficit compared to the leaders we have now. And honestly, I don't think the leaders we have now are that great either. And so I just feel like it's just one of those realities like we've, we've got to do a good job 
dads, moms, coaches, teachers, you know, leaders, boys, you know, troop leaders and all that. They've got to be able to speak leadership potential into the next generation. The second thing I'd say, and this is just a wish list. I don't know how in the world we'd address it. But but the cancel culture in America right now is the most toxic thing for leadership that ever is, right? If, if you remember Roosevelt's great quote, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he says, it's not the critic that counts, right? It's the person in the, in the arena that counts. It's the one who's making a difference. That's what matters. And yet we have a culture now that says the critic is all that matters, wow. right? That as soon as somebody has even the slightest misstep, the, the critics are going to go rabid in a feeding frenzy and make sure that that guy who had a misstep or a half a misstep or, you know, whatever is not only fired from his job, but then not allowed to do anything ever again. Right. Like you're just, it's just this crazy, ruthless, graceless world we live in. And again, that's why I think love is the answer. That's why I think the grace that Jesus offers is the answer. You know, Jesus not only said, love your enemies, but on the cross, when he was nailed there, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing, right? He, he modeled it for us, right? And he did that so that he could make us right with God and, uh, and basically turn enemies into friends. And so that's kind of where I keep coming back to this position of Jesus at the center. You know, anybody at, at my church over the last 15 years would say, if people ask about, hey, what was Mike like as a preacher? What is he like as a pastor? You know, I, I think there'd be words like, oh, he was good, or oh, he was boring, or I don't know, I slept through every sermon, or whatever. But but I think what they would all say is he was he was Jesus centric. He he was centered on Jesus because uh, if you're if you're not going to let Jesus call the shots, then I I'd say then don't pretend you're following him. You know what I mean? If, if you're going to go ahead and, and make a plan of hating your enemies, then just drop the name Jesus at the door, right? Like, that, like fine, do it, but, but don't pretend, you know, don't do the photo op with you holding a Bible in front of a church. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not how it goes. So anyway, that's just my two cents. And, and I think you're amazing for listening to what I had to say as if I had anything worthwhile to say. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, we might have to do a second episode. It was so fun. I'm in. You just let me know. You guys are wonderful. I, I love you. I love your hearts. We're getting, so coffee. Have... We're getting coffee soon. <laughs> okay, so I have I'm one final thing. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you had one thing that you hope all of our listeners could hear, what is it? Well, I, I spend a lot of my time reminding people how loved they are and how valuable they are and how, how beautiful and unique they are. I, I think it's so easy for us to cast our eyes on other people who might be accomplishing more, or who seem like they've got it going on a little bit better than we do. And so we've got this constant comparison and we're always sort of shaming ourselves for not having it together more. And I just want everybody to know, right now, give yourself some grace. Right now, love yourself. And right now, remember that you are special and beautiful and loved. Perfect. It's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. And reach out to me. I'd love to, I'd love to have a conversation. How do people, how do people connect with you? Yeah. I'm at MikeHowartonCoaching.com. MikeHowartonCoaching.com. You Howard, spend a lot of time you, on your paddleboard, I saw. I do. I love my paddleboard. I take my son Doozy all the time. And yeah, we're, uh, in fact, we're going right after this. It's a beautiful day. We're hitting out. Nice. Adrian's, yeah, Adrian loves the paddleboard. I tried it one time in DZ and, <laughs> where do you go adrian where do you have a favorite place 
I li- we ha- we live like right by Lake Washington, and so I go. That's right, Belize, Belize, Belize. Yeah. yeah, right, Belize, of course, yeah. Yeah, how about you? I actually, I, we, we go Washington, Sammamish, Cottage Lake, basically anywhere. Uh, we, we've, we've got a friend who has a place down on the South Puget Sound. And so we'll go down to the Tacoma Narrows and head yeah. out around there and chase seals. And it's very fun. Beautiful. Fun. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for hey. being with us. Yeah. God bless you guys. Thanks a ton. Thank Thanks, you. Mike. Have a great week. You too. All right. Bye. Love the Process Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. It means so much when you leave us a review and share with your friends. Bye.